Thanks for checking out this sermon from Redemption Church in Seattle, Washington, where we are enjoying Jesus, loving people, and making disciples. If you'd like to learn more about redemption, you can go to redemptionchurchseattle.com. Or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday here in Green Lake. So it's really good to be with you all this morning. I, uh, as you just heard in the, uh, the reading of the scripture in our liturgy, um, today's sermon is on the ever so popular subject of adultery and lust. And um, I've been humbled, convicted, uh, and just in deep prayer for our church all week, as this is just an unbelievably powerful passage of Scripture, unbelievably offensive, of course, in a city like Seattle, um, where Jesus has not come to give us our best life now or to tell us that the universe revolves around us, but rather he, he is okay with confronting the real idols of our hearts. And he does so not because he doesn't have anything else to do or he likes to be a religious bully, but rather he's come to set us free. And in setting us free, He'll get right down to the very real parts of who we are, call us to repentance, to forsake those things, and to follow him in grace. And so um, this is in the gospel, so we are going to hear good news. Uh, It's in the good news, according to Matthew, but um, part of the good news is dealing with, well, the the bad news of, of sin. And so last week was on murder and anger. This week is on lust and adultery. And then Jesus next week moves right on into the subject of divorce. It's like, good grief. He was on a roll in the Sermon on the Mount. And um, wow, it's just heavy. So, but what's amazing in this is that Jesus is continuing to expound on the kind of purity of heart and mind and soul that he wants for his people, those who would come after him as his followers. That is, Jesus is not okay with us merely appearing religious, righteous, holy on the outside while the inside is full of corruption, decay, lust, greed, and so on. Jesus actually wants a lifestyle, an actual relationship that translates not just from a, from a private relationship between you and God, but it, but it actually has to make its way out into how we think and feel and live in these physical bodies. So Jesus is not here to just tweak our moral lives a little bit and say, well, here's a here's a few suggestions on how to go through life, but rather Jesus has come to completely deconstruct everything uh, about us. That is, it's not just, we just bought a house. I did my first day of actual landscaping yesterday. I cleaned the gutters. It was a a ton of fun. Um, It was actually kind of fun. Jude was on the ladder with me the entire time. Don't tell mom. But anyway, um, but Jesus does more than just landscape and fix the outside. He actually shows up and deconstructs the entire house. He'll tear the entire house of your life down, and then he'll take a sledgehammer to the foundation, and he'll bust that up too, and then he'll relay the entire experience of your life with himself, beginning with himself and his word, and then he builds the house as he wills it to be. That's what the Christian life is actually like. So for Christians here today, you're going like, that's, that's totally it, yeah. It, I've tried to compartmentalize my 
faith and it doesn't work because every time I push Jesus out or push him into a corner and be like, I'm, I'll give you 75%, but this corner right here is mine, Jesus will come and claim that too. And you know what it's like. If you walk with him long enough, that's totally how he is. And uh, that's because he is not only our savior, but he's our Lord. And lordship is wildly unpopular. And for good reason. Anyone having a Lord, that doesn't sound exciting. But at the same time, if you know who this Lord is, he's just, he's irresistible. So this week, um, I, I had, it's so awesome to be around new Christians. You know what it's like when you're around a new Christian? Somebody that just met Jesus. Um, I've been a Christian for 21 years, and, and it's so cool to be around a new Christian. So I, was, I walked uh, Green Lake this week with my friend Zach. He was baptized at, uh, at Easter. And um, we are walking the lake, and Zach was talking about his faith. And he said, man, it's so weird. He's like, I met Jesus, and he's kind of just taken over. <laughs> and he was like, you know, he's like, he's, he's like in my marriage. He's in my thought life. He's how I think about work. He's how I think about friends or family. It's like he's into everything now. It's like he's, everything's changed. I'm like, yeah, dude, that's it. That, that's, that's it. And he's understanding that Jesus has not only saved him, but Jesus is actually his, his Lord too, which means Jesus tells him, like what I just mentioned, how to think and how to feel and what goes on on the on the inside. And this lordship stuff, it's tricky here in the city of Seattle because there's aspects of the gospel that we totally, that our city will totally resonate with. And then there's other aspects that they go, are you insane? So for example, we can say God is love. And Seattle says, amen. Then we say God is holy. And Seattle gets nervous or quiet or what does that mean? We can say, God gives grace, and Seattle says, of course, that's what he should do. But then we say, God commands us to repent, and Seattle says, who, me? We can say, God has given us freedom, and Seattle responds with, that's right, we love freedom. But then we say, God also expects us to be wise, and Seattle sighs, thinking, isn't that for boring old people? Shouldn't wisdom just be something later? There's aspects of the gospel that just confront the city outside and it confronts us inside. And here's what's beautiful about the gospel. As we preach on the gospel of grace here all the time, unashamedly, and we love the gospel of grace, God's grace not only covers our sin, but in giving the Holy Spirit to us, he empowers us to hate sin and to run from sin and to flee sin. So when you fall, yes, grace is there to catch you. But God's transforming power is not just a license to kind of go, well, I guess it doesn't really matter how I live, but rather grace empowers us to run from sin. So today, when we look at this passage, we see Jesus draw a very bold line in the sand and say, these people can be fans, and these are the people who are followers. It's a good thing. Like you can be, it's easy to be a fan of Jesus' teaching on lust. Like, hey, don't, don't take what's not yours. It's easy to be a fan of them. Like, right, that's good. That's good. But then Jesus says, I'm also after your heart. And this heart-oriented discipleship 
It's powerful. And it's very serious. That is, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it will involve a radical renunciation of your life in exchange for his. And that includes allowing him to define what sin is and isn't. And that might be the rub where you really figure out, am I Christian or not, is when Jesus is the one that gets to call the shots on everything. Until then, it's a battle for lordship. Jesus said it this way, if anyone wishes to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and come after me. So, one last disclaimer, and then we'll just exegete the text here. Um, To stand here and preach a sermon on lust and adultery, um, I confess that I've not been a perfect man. I've not lived a perfect life. And so I don't get to stand here and tell you people how you should live your life because I've arrived. Uh, I'm not here because I went to seminary. I'm not here because I can put together sermons. I'm not here because the members of our church accepted and installed me as a pastor. I'm not here for any of that because of any of those things. I can stand here today solely by the grace of God and, and move forward with you as one of your brothers that wants to walk with Jesus too, alongside you. So, here we go. Let's just get right on into the text. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so Jesus began with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the, right? And he describes the heart, the kind of people that he wants us to be as disciples. You've heard it said, this, and I say this, okay? So he starts with the Beatitudes, then he moves into uh, being salt and light. He talks about uh, not destroying the law, but fulfilling the law, and he moves into anger and murder, and now here he is talking about lust and adultery. So he quotes the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And to be clear, what is adultery? Adultery is having a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. It is blatant willful defiance of the marriage covenant and is strongly condemned by God from cover to cover in Scripture as grievous sin. The consequences for adultery in the Old Testament were as severe as possible. It was capital punishment. Leviticus 20 verse 10 says this, if a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. Other sins that were in the category of capital punishment included murder, idolatry, uh, approaching Mount Sinai when the presence of God was there, uh, necromancy or sorcery, uh, and blasphemy. Those were the other categories of sin that would result in capital punishment in Old Testament covenantal Israel. So with the consequences of adultery resulting in death, adultery was not something that is as rampant as it is in our society today. But it did happen. But it wasn't as common as it is nowadays in our society. In our society, 
Well, adultery destroys homes and families, lives, relationships, communities, and on down the line. Here's just some statistics on infidelity. I saw this week. In over one-third of marriages, one or both partners admit to cheating. 22% of men say they've cheated on their significant other. 14% of women admit to cheating on their significant other. 36% of men and women admit to having an affair with a coworker. And affairs are, are most likely to occur two years into a marriage. 35% of men and women admit to cheating while on a business trip. 9% of men admit they might have an affair to get back at a spouse. 14% of women admit they might have an affair to get back at a spouse. 10% of affairs begin online, and 40% of, on, uh, 40% of the time online affairs turn into real-life affairs. So this is um, serious business. So why does God forbid adultery so much? I mean, in our day and age, we have open marriages and people running around on each other so often. Is it really that big of a deal? What's wrong with having a relationship on the side? What's wrong with that? Is it really that bad? And God's word responds, yes, it is that bad. God completely forbids it. In every day, in every age, in every culture, God has not relaxed his commands on what it is to have a faithful relationship. And so if you're, if you're remotely entertaining the idea of having an affair and think that you might be the exception to the rule because your situation is different, you need to come to your senses and run. You need to run to God. You need to run to his word. You should run to his people. And you should absolutely forsake anything that has to do with having an affair. God is holy and has not compromised. Second, you need to understand that marriage is a sacred covenant between God and his people. And adultery is vandalism on that sacred bond. Third, God actually cares about how we treat one another and whether or not we break one another's hearts and ruin our families. God actually very much so cares. When I was 19 and I began going to college, uh, I, got an, I signed up for an internship at this large church in Greenville, South Carolina, and I showed up for my first day of work, and uh, the pastor was fired that day. So that was an interesting introduction to the ministry. Uh, the pastor was fired that day uh, for having an affair. And when sitting down with the pastor, going, what happened? He said, well, you know, the church was blowing up and there was all this stuff going on. I mean, I, how was I supposed to know that it really wasn't the will of God? After all, I mean, I was, I was preaching and traveling and writing books and doing all this stuff. How did I, I mean, how, who am I to say that God didn't actually bring this person to me? You see, like, we can begin to justify things very quickly and very easily. And nobody ends up in bed with somebody like, oops, didn't know how this happened. It was a lot of bad decisions. It's, 
one longer conversation at the coffee shop. It's a longer conversation in the gym. It's a, it's, oh, it's just occasionally texting. Oh, it's occasionally uh, this. And it snowballs quickly into, oh, I just stopped by to say hi at work. Oh, I just stopped to say bye at the house. I just stopped by. Nobody just ends up in bed with somebody that's not their spouse. So this pastor had convinced himself that God had brought this other woman into the relationship. If you're curious about, well, what is the will of God? Here is how Paul says it explicitly. This is the will of God. It's in Thessalonians. This is the will of God. Like, oh, well, this is very clear. Thank you, Paul. Uh, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, becoming holy, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that, that, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Or consider what James had to say. Let no one say when he's tempted. Remember this one? Let no one say when he's tempted. Ever been, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brothers and sisters, in Seattle, our culture does nothing in terms of telling us to be faithful, to deny ourselves, and to seek the well-being of one another. At the end of the day, our city has adopted the mentality of you do you, and uh, just try not to hurt anybody along the way. You do you, man. Whatever's cool. And here's the thing. The try not to hurt anybody philosophy crumbles when it's adultery. (laughs) Everyone gets hurt. And this is why God comes against it so clearly time and time again in Scripture. So listen for the lies. Listen for the lies. Listen for the lies of the culture that says one affair is not that big of a deal. Listen to the lies of your own heart that says, I'm entitled to this person. Listen to the lies of Satan who will say, God actually wills this adultery. We have to get really good at listening to the lies and discerning what does it mean to be salt and light and to live in the light and to live in the truth. In Romania, they call Christians the repenters. I love that. I love that. I pray that repentance sweeps our church. I pray that repentance sweeps our city. Somebody said to you, I heard two years ago, that revival in America is simply waiting on, we're sitting on go, all we have to do is just put away our sexual immorality and revival would probably sweep the country in a great awakening. That might actually be true. If you think to yourself, I won't fall, it's just a silly, flirty relationship at work. Consider the men that had affairs in the Old Testament. David was the godliest, 
Solomon was the wisest. Samson was the strongest. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> so who are we? We desperately need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. And we need one another. Everybody enjoying church so far? <laughs> okay, cool. This is a great book. All right. Um, So he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now here comes Jesus' follow-up. But I say to you, oh gosh, it's going to get heavier. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So now we see Jesus isn't just one-upping the law. He's perfectly fulfilling the law, going past just who do you end up in bed with. Now he goes right down into the very heart of the human being and going, I want that part of your life. And I love that about Jesus. I love that about Jesus, that he wants to get down into the very center of our hearts. Not just tweak a few things on the outside, but to change how we actually feel and what goes on on the inside. So here's what Jesus says. Whoever looks, this this looking here, by the way, it's a prolonged gazing with lustful intention and fantasy going on in the mind. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying, Whoever looks at a beautiful person and says, ah, they're really attractive, that's, you're, you're, you're wretched. That's not what Jesus is doing. That's impossible. In fact, Jesus, throughout Scripture, God ordained, or, um, what's the word? I forget the word. Oh, well, anyway, I'll skip that point. Um, throughout Scripture, though, God has, God has made human beings beautiful. Now, does it mean that every human you see that's attractive, it's a sin to acknowledge they're attractive? No. It's taking that thought one step further and turning that into sexual lust. That's what Jesus is getting at. So, he's getting at the standard of the inward moral righteousness of the kind of people that belong to the kingdom of God. So Jesus said it in the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Well, here we are again going, the pure in heart are not looking lustfully after other people. So why is this lust such a big deal to Jesus? Because lust is an inward craving. Lust is essentially idolatry. It's the 10th commandment. So now Jesus got two of them in this one. Don't commit adultery. The 10th commandment is what? Thou shalt not covet. And in the 10th commandment, Moses lists a few things. What you're not allowed to covet. Neighbor's possessions and so on. And then it says you're not allowed to covet your neighbor's spouse. Coveting is more than wanting, by the way. Coveting is a deep-seated, I have to have this person. I have to be with them. I have to. I can't get them out of my head. All I want to do is be with this person. That's coveting. And I love what Frederick Buechner, he's one of the greatest writers. Here's how he described what lust is. Lust is the craving for salt of a person who's dying of thirst. Lust is the craving of salt of a person who is dying of thirst. And if you could sit 
with myself or Pastor Drew or Pastor Ben or I guess now Mike, if he ever gets back from Germany, um, one of our other newest pastors, um, if you could sit with us as pastors and, and hear some of the conversations that you listen to as a result of the sin of lust going completely unchecked or unrepented of, it's brutal. Marriages that go through the hardest things. People end up with intense addictions. I'm telling you just as a pastor and as one of your friends, we have to run from this stuff and to not entertain it. Not in the slightest. And Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. So it's impossible not to mention pornography, not because I want to talk about pornography, but because it has to be spoken about. A couple of weeks ago, Hugh Hefner died, and I watched my Facebook feed of so many of my friends just go into mourning. Oh my gosh, one of the greatest people that's ever lived. Oh. In 1953, he published the first his first publication of Playboy magazine. And it's not funny, and it's not cute, and it's not trite, and it's not just, well, no one gets hurt in pornography. They do. It's awful. It's enslaving. It's abuse. Like, well, how rampant is pornography? Well, it's a $97 billion a year industry. Globally, 12 billion of those dollars come from the United States. It's a massive industry. Like, well, good thing it's not in the church. Well, um, Barna Research and Proven Men Ministry uh, did something in 2014, and they, they found that 77% of Christian men between the ages of 18 and 30 uh, view pornography at least once a month, and 36% look at it at least once a day. It is a problem. So, brothers and sisters, this would be part of the thing where Paul would jump in and go, so fight the good fight. Fight. Don't lay down and die. Don't give in. You don't have to be a victim of this stuff. You weren't just like, well, I, I, you know, it's just there and it's on my phone. So I'm, you don't have to. Smash your phone. Throw it away. Get rid of it. Do whatever it takes. We'll get to it. Like, I mean, it's, don't buy the lie that it's not affecting you. It does affect you. It affects you big time. It affects how you feel about yourself. It affects how you view your neighbor. It affects how you feel. It affects everything. It, it, blocks, it blocks your prayer. It blocks your time with God. It blocks your fellowship with one another when your heart is rotting with that, those images in your mind. It actually does that. It does hurt. 
The old Puritan John Owen said it this way. He used the word mortify all the time, which is just awesome because we don't use it, but it means to kill. He said it this way. Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not from a day of work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Then Jesus goes to the radical call of obedience. Verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. If you're wondering why Jesus isn't more popular, this would be a good indication. Um, who in the world actually talks like this about lust and, uh, and adultery in the heart? Who says things like this? If your right eye causes you to sin, just pluck your eye out. Cut your hand off. Is this a real commandment? Well, throughout church history, many have actually followed this commandment literally. Um, I read one story. I'll share it with you this week. Uh, actually, I'll skip it. Just ask me about it. Um, look at that, using self-control. All right. Jesus goes straight for the heart and says, gouge your eye out, cut your hand off, do whatever it takes to flee sexual immorality. And we might hear that and go, oh my gosh, Jesus. Does, who wants to go to heaven that bad? And Christians raise their hand. I do. I do. And it's hard for us, maybe here in Seattle, because we're convinced that we pretty much have heaven here on earth. We have whatever we want whenever we want it. We might go, that's a little, that's a little much. In the first century context and throughout the world today, Christians are signing up going, you're worth it, Jesus. You're not only my Savior, you're my Lord, and I'm going to give you all of my life, my mind, my heart, my physical body, my relationships, my money, my job, my community. I'm just going to give, I'm going to give you my life. Even the parts that I disagree with you about, even the parts that I have a hard time with, even the parts I just, yeah, I'm going to give you all of my life, and I'm going to allow you to tell me how to live. So this is a radical call to forsake sin, to flee from sin. It's the same thing that the writer of Hebrews says, throw off every weight that easily entangles us, and to put our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Redemption, if your Christianity is not costing you anything, then it is not Christianity. Man, this is heavy stuff. I can't believe I got up in the rain to come hear this. Yeah, listen, if Christianity, if your faith is not costing you something, it is not Christianity. 
at the very bullseye of the gospel message, Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Give your life to me. Forsake everything. Matthew, leave your job. <laughs> James and John, you guys too. Yeah, it's a radical change that Jesus has brought. If your Christianity isn't costing you something, it's not Christianity. It really is a life of self-denial. And that means that we need one another. And as we grow as brothers and sisters, we actually ask each other the harder questions. How is your heart? What's going on in there? What are you looking at? How's your relationship with so and so? Like, it's actually, we're actually allowed to ask one another those things, not as religious police just trying to nitpick each other to death, but rather because we're brothers and sisters and we're in a fight to stay in the light, to stay the salt of the earth. And so therefore, that means we, we don't just play church. You know, come in, hi, how you doing? Oh, I'm good, praise the Lord. And then get in the car and go home and, but to actually authentically connect with one another because we care about each other walking with Jesus. We really do become our brother's keeper. And I have to mention this because Jesus says it twice in the text. Jesus mentions hell. It's better that you lose your eye and go into heaven blind than going to hell seeing. It's better you lose your hand and go into heaven maimed than to go into hell whole. When Jesus describes hell, he describes it in terms of eternal separation from God. It's not, it's not like we're all your like party friends just like, oh, well, it's just going to be a party. I mean, gosh, it's just, you know, it's not that. It's eternal separation from God. In another place, he describes it as weeping, gnashing teeth. In another place, he describes it as complete outer darkness. And if Jesus came to go to Good Friday to save you from it, then please Please take him seriously. He cares about your sex, your sexuality, and what goes on on the inside here. And the one who conquered the grave is allowed to lay claim to the inside. And he's made a place for you in heaven. So essentially the gospel call is, so act like it. You're on your way to heaven. Be a kingdom citizen. Live completely different than this world. You don't have to go to that club. You don't have to go to that website. You don't have to go to that relationship. You don't have to just keep feeding that black hole called your flesh that just soaks it all up. You don't have to do all that. You can give your life to Christ and actually rest. 
And here's what's beautiful about walking in holiness. Sure, it's hard. Sure, it's taxing. Sure, it's self-denial. But it is not devoid or empty of joy, of real peace, of like, I don't have to be that way anymore. And you get the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. You get the nearness of Jesus. And you get the peace that comes with walking in integrity. So when Jesus talks about hell, it's serious. So I know we all start asking the question, so uh, is my salvation secure if I don't repent? And Jesus would respond, well, Do you understand the gospel? The gospel is not a license to sin and to keep one part of our life reserved for ourselves, but rather the gospel comes and lays claim to all of our lives. And thus we repent, which means we change. It's different from confessing sin. Confession is one thing. Repentance is the lifestyle that corresponds to that. And so we, by grace, strive, though imperfectly, though broken, we struggle the whole way between this day and our last. We're going to struggle, but we're going to struggle. We're not going to lay down and die in our sin. In fact, Jesus expects you to mess up. That's why he includes in the prayer later in the Sermon on the Mount, Father, forgive us our sins, Why would he have to say that? Because he knows we're going to struggle. So are you in a battle? If you're in a battle and you're fighting this sin with all your heart, listen, you don't have to dread or fear the just judgment or wrath of God. Drink deep of the grace of God. Drink deep of the reality that Jesus on Good Friday said, it is finished. That Jesus literally died for every one of your sins. All the ones you committed in the body and all the ones that are committed in your heart, Jesus died for all of those. And your slate is completely clean. And when he resurrected from the dead, he justified you, which means he gives you all of his righteousness, which means when God looks at you, he sees you holy, he sees you blameless, he sees you pure, he sees you acceptable, and he calls you his son or his daughter. You belong in the family of God. So as we hear about this sin today, we have to go, yeah, yeah. Like Martin Luther said, every time the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Every time the devil haunts you of your sin, you remember, you point to Good Friday and say, I know you're right. Good Friday was my fault. But I have a Savior who resurrected, and I have a Savior who has vindicated me, and I have a Savior who pleased before God's throne for me. My Savior's blood was sufficient to cover all my sins, and not only mine, but the sins of the world. That's good news. So as Christians today, I want you to walk out these doors encouraged in the fact that Jesus loves you, Jesus saves you, Jesus accepts you, Jesus gives you his grace, and at the same time walk out and go, I'm going to war with my flesh. I'm going to war against my sin, and I'm gonna walk by the grace of God in the power of the Spirit as a holy child of God. If you're not a Christian today, 
I plead with you to give your life to Jesus who will pardon you, who will forgive you, and who will save you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the good news of the gospel. We do ask that you would work powerfully in our church. Would you sweep and cleanse us from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet yet again? God, thank you that as you see everything that goes on inside our hearts, all the lusts, that that does not push you away. You still come closer to us, longing to purify us. And so we ask that you would do just that, Holy Spirit. Would you help us to walk in faith, to walk in the light, to walk in repentance, and to honor you, Lord Jesus, not only with what we do with our bodies, but what goes on inside of our minds and in our hearts. I pray that our church would know the difference today between conviction and condemnation, and that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ. But as we are convicted, that we would welcome your work, Holy Spirit. Thank you for not passing over us. Thank you for working deep within us. Jesus, we reverence your name. You are holy. Thank you for reconciling us to God and giving us one another. We pray these things in your good and strong and saving name. Amen.